Hey everyone, welcome to Go Bold. It's 2024, and that means that this year is the 100th anniversary of the founding of the Royal Canadian Air Force. So happy 100th to all those who have served and are serving in the Royal Canadian Air Force. And of course, true respect to those that paid the ultimate sacrifice. To mark this significant milestone, we plan to publish a number of episodes featuring the men and women who serve in the Air Force. And as we do here at Go Bold, that means we will be speaking with senior leaders in the service, including the commander of the Royal Canadian Air Force. So we encourage you to keep an ear out for those episodes. So how do you mark the 100th anniversary of the Royal Canadian Air Force? Well, we will learn that over the course of this year, but central to the efforts are the men and women that make up the CF-18 demonstration team, which travels across the country and further abroad to demonstrate the capabilities of Canada's fighter force. Joining me today is Royal Canadian Air Force fighter pilot and the pilot for the 2024 CF-18 demo team, Captain Caleb Robert whose call sign is Tango. Captain Robert is a combat-qualified element lead on the CF-18 Hornet, and he is assigned to 425 Tactical Fighter Squadron, known as the Alouettes, which is based at Three Wing in Bagotville, Quebec. In this episode, you'll hear about Tango's motivation to serve, flying the CF-18 Hornet, his operational history, and you'll hear great detail about this year's CF-18 demo team, the jet he'll fly, and Tango's focus and approach for the important air show season ahead. It's an awesome chat with a great warfighter and ambassador for the Royal Canadian Air Force. So let's roll the music and get at it. everybody, welcome to Go Bold. My name is Jody Atariwala and I'm your host. And today's episode is actually a really special one because it's one of the episodes that I've decided to highlight in celebration of the Royal Canadian Air Force's 100th anniversary. So joining me today is Royal Canadian Air Force fighter pilot, Captain Caleb Robert, whose call sign is Tango. And Tango has the privilege of being the 2024 CF-18 demo pilot for the CF-18 demo team. So Captain Robert, thank you so much for joining me today on Go Bold. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks very much for having me. Hey, it's awesome for you to be here. Uh, you are coming direct from Canadian Forces Base Bagotville. Um, as I do with all of my guests, Tango, I start by asking what made you join the military and what made you pick the branch that you did? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question uh, that you get often and you actually, it forces you to think about it uh, a lot. And for me, it really boils down to motivation. You know, what motivated to do this job? And really, it's what what motivated me to, to be a fighter pilot. There was no real, I want to join the military. I want to join the Air Force. I want to be a fighter pilot. I was like one of those kids who was just straight to fighter pilot. It's like, that's what I want to do. Right. On. Uh, so I'll speak to that. It's sort of like many other things where motivation kind of evolves over time, uh, frankly. And for one, 
you know, I'd be lying if I said, you know, the glory of being a fighter pilot wasn't wasn't a small part of it. Um, the sort of Tom Cruise kind of romanticism of, uh, of the whole thing. But uh, I think this was the shortest sort of motivation for him. And it quickly evolved into something else. And for me, that was the challenge of of what it was I, I was dreaming to go do. And I think I was really attracted to the exclusivity of being part of something specialized, uh, being part of an elite group, an elite club of experts who, you know, the saying like unmotivated and undedicated people need not apply sort of thing. <laughs> right. And, you know, so in or an organization where it was kind of weeding out people to be that they were searching for the best. And, and that really fueled my motivation for a really long time. And I can remember loving films and movies like, uh, Speed and Angels. Have you heard of that one? But it's a it's a film that covers the last two folks of the F-14 Tomcat that went through on the Navy carrier, and I thought that was sweet. And other films like The Guardian, that search and rescue movie. He's sort of working his way through an elite club, an elite an elite team of folks. Uh, Lone Survivor, Band of Brothers, uh, Annapolis um, are all films that that kind of reflected that. Uh, that challenge that I was kind of seeking. And, and that probably fueled me a lot through the teenage years and the high schools and the and the university of all of it. But really what it is, what it kind of grew to be in full maturity and what it is now still is doing a job that I can see the effects of sort of an operational mentality to the whole thing. In that way, I really admire other careers and platforms like Search and Rescue um, who are yeah. really doing something tangible, who are doing something practical, doing something to help people and they can see the immediate effect of. And that's really what drives me now. And the the sort of difference for a fighter pilot is that you don't want that to be the reality in terms of the world when when that's actually going on. It's, it's a terrible thing. Right. But um, when the need arises and we have to do that job, you really want the the experts that are going to execute that with surgical precision, with full confidence, and you can really see the effect of that. So that that's really what drives me now, whether it's sort of in a training environment where I'm sort of passing those skills down to the next generation, I'm passing that knowledge, or in an operational context where, hey, we're at the pointy end of the spear, something's going down in the world, and we need to uh, go fix that issue, <laughs> then I'm super motivated by that. So. Uh, seeing the effects, seeing the operational uh, sort of point of point of view is what drives me now. I love it. I love it. That is super cool. And, you know, one of the beautiful things about doing this podcast is everybody that I've spoken to has a different motivation to do what they do and different ways of articulating it. And um, yeah, I like, I mean, I love your approach and I think it's so cool that you're living your dream and what you want to do. Um, so what was the pathway for you to get into the Canadian Armed Forces? Because some people go through universities, some people go through military colleges. Um, there's different ways to enter. Yeah, my pathway was very typical, I'd say. I normally refer to myself as a stereotypical fighter pilot. If you know one of us, you sort of know all of us, um, which is in some ways true, uh, some ways not. But uh, I went through uh, Royal Military College through ROTP, I was selected as a pilot going into it, did my four years at uh, at the Royal Military College, and then went straight into flying training, passing through Portage, uh, going to Moose Jaw from there, phase one, phase two on the Harvard two, 
from there being selected uh, fighters and then going up to Cold Lake, going to the Hawk, uh, spending spending about a year there with 419 Squadron and then um, just moving across the airfield to 410 and doing the Hornet course from there. So in that way, there's absolutely nothing remarkable about my journey uh, through. Obviously, I had a lot of exciting times and it was an absolute blast and a challenge and you know the highs and lows of all of it, but uh, really nothing remarkable about, about the pathway to get there. Yeah, you know, it's funny that you say that because one of the things that I often ask guests who are fighter pilots is, tell me the first time that you hopped into a, a jet and what that was like. But oftentimes, I've come to learn that the first time you hop into a jet is not when you're at the controls. Usually, you know, people in in your position have had the opportunity to get a ride with an active pilot. And I don't even mean from a training perspective. I mean, just as having like the opportunity to to just literally go up in a two-seater. And then it kind of gives you a feel for what you're in store for, for the future. So you know, I'll, I'll still ask the question. Uh, what was it like the first time you got into a jet? Uh, yeah. To answer the first part of the question, I actually never did a ride before flying the F-18 for the first time, even though I had opportunities okay. for some reason. And I, and I really, it's really inexplicable. Um, but I, I sort of told myself that the first time I'm going to fly that big gray beautiful jet is when i'm in the front seat and i sort of turned down all the opportunities to go uh to go in the back speed and go for a ride and i again i really don't know why but um i just said to myself yeah when i fly for the first time i'm going to be the one that's flying it but uh anyways that for that for the first time in it in the in the jet of course it was in moose jaw uh on the hawk and you know, seeing a HUD for the first time and all those sounds and smells and the speed and the G and everything was obviously really great. Um, but I think in that training context, when there's so much stress, there's so much anticipation to it all, you've been studying so hard, you've been doing all these sims, you've been doing all this work. Um, by the time you actually got there, I was a little bit, I, I don't want to use the word underwhelmed, but I was focused. I was so focused and so determined at that point in time that I don't think I allowed the the magic of it all to sort of land on me. Right. Um, I think the first time it really hit me was on the first solo. Okay. Uh, when my instructor very casually and probably wisely on purpose sort of was a little bit laissez-faire about the whole thing and sort of threw me the keys to the Jag. And was like, okay, go take it up, um, have fun and come back. And I think at that moment is when I really had that, oh, my moment where it's like, I'm flying a fighter jet all by myself. And I think that's probably similar for a lot of the fellas. Um, Whenever, I'll just say this now, blanket statement, probably, I'm going to overgeneralize, but fighter pilots don't like people in the (laughs) backseat. We're we're natural born sort of I'm in I'm in charge it's per uh, type A personality kind of people uh, sure. most of but um so whenever we have instructors in the backseat it never feels like we're we really got the keys to the jag at that point but uh, I I would say that for for a lot of guys the first solo is probably the the moment where they have uh, where they have that sort of click and they're like wow I'm I'm really doing this for real and it's totally surreal like you. It's almost like you're living in a dream. You you can't believe it's actually happening. And it's almost, it's almost 
degrading your experience with how surreal it is. I don't know if you've ever, if anyone's ever felt that with, with any other type of career, any other type of dream where you finally realize you've been sort of hoping and, and meditating about and, and imagining yourself doing this thing for so long, for so many years that when you actually get to do it, it's, it's almost too surreal for you to fully appreciate it in the moment when it actually happens. But in time, it, it comes and it lands on you. And then you're like, wow, usually when you land about an hour after you land, you're like walking home, you know, from, from the airfield, you're walking home from what you just did. And you got a bit of a swagger in your step. You got a little bit of a smile on your face being like, I just went and flew a fighter jet all by myself. And now I'm just walking casually back to my house. So that was pretty great. That is, that is awesome. And you are the first person that has shared that with me in terms of like, I passed up opportunities to go up in the jet. That's you're you're the first. (laughs) That's awesome. And I've chat with a lot of fighter pilots. So, so that's kind of cool actually. Uh, And again, another reason why I love this podcast, because every guest is different and, and I love that. Um, So, okay. So we can skip ahead in terms of like, you know, you go to 410 squadron, the operational training unit to get your ticket to fly the CF-18 in, in a fleet squadron. So then where did you go for your first operational unit? Yeah, I went directly to Bagotville, so three wing in Quebec at uh, 425 squadron by request. Um, and very graciously from the powers of I was uh, sent there. Okay. Um, uh, so that that was my first operational tactical fighter squadron. That's where I'm still at. I've had the the pleasure of being there for about four years now. Um, and yeah, couldn't imagine being at another unit, which I'm sure everyone else that goes to their first unit says so. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. And so what is it like being a fighter pilot in Canada now? Uh, you're flying the CF-18 Hornet. Um, the whole fleet is going through the Hornet extension project upgrade. Um yeah, tell me about flying the CF-18 Hornet in Canada. And then I know that you also went to Europe, so we'll talk about that afterwards. Flying it in Canada has uh, many advantages, many challenges, uh, which we could spend all day talking about. Of course, the weather always uh, is always a factor, but we have ways to mitigate that going down on deployments into the United States. You know, during this time of year, it's January right now, 2024, and and we have a deployment coming up this spring to Tucson where the weather is much better. Um, so weather always has its challenges, of course. But uh, you mentioned that the Hornet extension program. So HEP, HEP 1, HEP 2. Uh, HEP 2 coming down the line, having our first jet actually show up in Bagotville here uh, recently. We're super looking forward to that with some great new capabilities um, there. I think one of the the common misconceptions, if I, if I could if I could go here in the Canadian public is that the Hornet that we bought, you know, a few decades ago is the same Hornet that we fly today. And it's really not the case. Right. Um, it has gone through so many upgrades. It's uh, you know, we're, we're, I'm working with three HD screens in there, uh, which is awesome. I got full, you know, hands-on throttle and stick capabilities. I've got some sweet weapons with some even sexier weapons coming down the line, which are going to make us pretty lethal. So, um, yeah, to quell any any concerns about us flying sort of an old, rusty, aging jet that's a kind of a death trap is really is really just not the case. It's a pretty capable airplane still. Um, and these days, especially with the evolution in in technology and in weapons and stuff, it's really, I would say, in my opinion, 
slightly less about the platform that you're flying, but it's kind of what weapons you have on board, you know, what heat are you packing? And the delivery system is, is becoming increasingly less significant uh, to what sort of weapons you have on board. So the, the good news is, and the, the optimistic point of view I have is that the weapons that we're getting and the capabilities that are down the line are, are moving us forward and making us sort of a, Yes, in an old platform, but uh, with a sharp sting still. So um, that's cool. Uh, of course, F-35 has been announced this year. That's going to be uh, sweet. Uh, I, I don't ever comment on F-35. I think it's, you know, one one or two too many years away for myself to have much to say about it. And, and honestly, the program and the capability isn't quite at the uh, tactical level yet. We're a tactical operator like myself has uh has much to do with it right now so sure. i'll just i'll just mention that now because i know we're probably going to be asked about it it is interesting you know um i take your point about the cf-18 and, and you know i did an episode all about the hornet extension project and uh and that was with brigadier general belf and uh and it was awesome you know he explained to me how the the hornet is being modernized in kind of two phases hep one and hep two HEP-1 is across the whole fleet, and then HEP-2 is just, I believe it's 36 aircraft that are modernized within AESA radar, et cetera, et cetera. So it's really going to be the most capable CF-18s that exist. Um, For sure. Out of curiosity, at 425 Squadron, are you guys going to be getting HEP-2 jets, or is that 433 at Canadian Forces Base Bagotville? Yeah, how I'll answer that one, sorry, just because it's a little bit in flux, is that three wing will be getting HEP two jets, uh, for sure. So right. we, we already have them in our hangar right now. Uh how exactly the the dissemination of those airplanes are gonna are gonna look and, and exactly how all that is gonna work out is a little bit TBD, but uh we have them, we're getting more, uh, and both wings will have a, a selection of those of those higher capable HEP two airplanes, yeah. Right. And that's the way that Brader General Belf explained it to, I think, if memory serves, he was saying that they would go to a specific squadron at each wing. But it's cool to know that they're there. And uh, I hope you get a chance to fly one because that'd be kind of neat. But uh, yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so obviously, one of the main functions of a Royal Canadian Air Force fighter pilot is conducting NORAD operations. Um, Tell me about going north or or just doing NORAD ops in Canada. Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, NORAD is uh, is a beast. <laughs> it's a it's a big, reliable uh, structure for sure. Um, couple stories, I guess. My own experiences. I've been up to Iqaluit. Uh One time, I was up in Iqaluit. I We intercepted a, a couple B two bombers. Uh, three of them actually. Cool. Um, yeah, it was one of those days where you took off and you didn't necessarily know where you were going or how long you were going to be gone for. And I remember seeing the coast of Greenland and Maine on the same day, uh, <laughs> the state of Maine on the same day, tanked on three different air-to-air refueling platforms. Um, yeah, it was a seven-hour mission. It was awesome. Um, but yeah, NORAD takes kind of takes you all over. Oh, uh, Tango, I, I got to stop you there only because I got to hear about that. Like, what was it like intercepting a B-2? Because that's just freaking cool, man. 
Yeah, it was it was pretty cool. They had a pretty sweet call sign too. I can't remember exactly what it was. It was something like spooky flight or misty or something like that. Some something sexy. And I was like, oh yeah, that's pretty awesome. <laughs> um, of course, they're they're a stealth bomber, right. as you know, and and that becomes tricky to to lock up on on a, on a radar and a fourth gen platform at times. But uh, but we got them and uh, we intercepted them and they're. They were pretty cool to look at. They were very sleek. They were very ghostly, and uh, and they were super great guys too. I mean, they were obviously coming coming from somewhere very far away, and uh, they were happy to see us, and we were happy to see them. We got some really cool pictures and uh, and some good discussion along the way. But it was really neat to just escort them, you know, along the entire the entire east coast of Canada, really, and down into the states. Hand them off to our brothers in arms in the in the U.S. and then carry on doing some some other some other activities with the navy uh 200 miles off the coast with some with some sailors that had been out there for a while so we got to motivate them with some low passes and stuff and and finally end up uh, back in Bagaville, which was which i was very pleased about uh <laughs> after seven hours being in the jet and being up in a calumet of course for for a few days prior so uh that was a re- that was a really neat experience for me and and uh, to see it as a, as a junior guy back then, too, was really, really valuable uh, to kind of. Yeah, for sure. That sounds like a hell of a sortie, man. That is, that is super, super cool. I would love to see those pictures of you guys formed up on a B2 that just like, I mean, what a great shot that would be. Yeah, um, it was cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, You mentioned being up in the Callaway. Have, have you ever had to do like short field arrested landings in any of your time or? I, I um, cer- say, I, certainly, sh- certainly arrested landings. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Not necessarily short field just because, I mean, we have a limit on the, on the length of runway that we can land on, of course. And, and we kind of stick to that, but sure. actually it's funny. You mentioned that in my early years on the Hornet, I say early years, I'm still pretty, I'm still pretty uh, young by, by comparison. But uh, when I first started on the Hornet, I sort of had a propensity to, to have emergencies uh, various emergencies that would lead to arrested landings seemingly more than my other colleagues <laughs> okay. for whatever reason. So, <laughs> so in, in my early years, I, I had, I had my good share of, uh, of arrested landings and, uh, which, which is really a good experience to do. And it's always a fun ride to take a fun roller coaster, yeah. uh, going from, you know, 160 knots to zero in, uh, in about 200 feet. So it's, uh, that's super fun. That is super cool. Well, wow. and so you've had more than your share. <laughs> Yeah, more more than I want to, but again, it's all good training. And yeah, yeah, no, totally. Hey, man, any any flight that you can walk away from, right? So that's it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so tell me about flying some dissimilar air combat maneuvering, ACM, BFM, however you want to put it. Um, I would love to hear about some of your more notable experiences within the continent, because as I said, you know, I don't want to blow your thunder in terms of talking about Europe. Yeah, when we went to Luke Air Force Base, I believe it was November 21, um, we had an opportunity to fly with, interestingly, the 425th Squadron, which is a Singaporean uh, in-house squadron in Luke Air Force Base in Arizona. And uh, I actually flew with a few of the pilots that were on exchange with me back in Cold Lake, uh, some Singaporean bros that I had made friends with there. So it was really fun to see them down there. Cool. Uh, kind of, we, we were all grown up at that point, you know, right. I had graduated to the Hornet, they had graduated to the F-16 and we were kind of doing, doing the real job. So it was sure. cool to see them down there. But anyways, we went out for a sortie 
and I flew with against, I'll say, one of their uh, F-16 drivers. And the remarkable thing about this story is we uh, we split uh, for for one v one BFM, him versus me, fighter pilot versus fighter pilot kind of thing. And something I never thought I'd hear ever was on the radio, this, this Singaporean bro of mine, we get to the merge, you know, about the, the third iteration of the merge, he goes, which way are you going? And I had to, I had to tell him, I was like, you know, for safety reasons, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm going this way. And he's like, okay. And then we could carry on and, and we do the fight and I won't, I won't tell you who won or lost, but we get to the debrief. And he, in the debrief, the the words that I never thought I heard uttered were, you, when you turned, the false canopy on the bottom of the airplane confused me about which way you were going. And, you know, we jo- we, we joke a lot about that uh, behind closed doors and stuff. But, uh, hey, I guess if it worked, if it worked on somebody once, then uh, who's to say it won't happen again? But I never thought I'd hear that in my life, that that, <laughs> that actually worked, but it but it did, which is which was, which is amazing. It was, it was, we all laughed about it. It was really fun. Um, and, uh, and it was some good training with some good learning down there. That is awesome. That is so cool. And yeah, because for those that are listening from outside of Canada, further afield, Canadian CF-18s have a false canopy painted on the underside of where the actual canopy is. So, um, I think it's kind of cool. Uh, and clearly, if it worked once, just like you said, Tango, um, you know, who's to say it couldn't work again, right? Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Actually, speaking of, in terms of like kind of unique Canadian-esque things about the CF-18, uh, somebody had commented on my YouTube channel, which is the same as this podcast, Go Bold. Um, they were asking, what is that light-looking door on the side of the fuselage of the CF-18. And I replied, I said, you said exactly what it is. It's a spotlight. <laughs> and, <That's> uh, right. <laughs> so you're the fighter pilot. Tell the listeners what that's all about. Sure, yeah. There is a big light. <laughs> it's pretty <laughs> mistake. There's a big light on the left side uh, of the airplane. It's something that, that Canada put by request onto the F-18 uh, specifically uh, to my knowledge, that when we would go up north intercepting, you know, the unsavory uh, aircraft of the world uh, out there, that you'd be able to flick that, you know, whatever it is, a million candles or whatever, right? Right. right. Uh, um, on, then it would light up the tail of the aircraft that you were intercepting so that you could see the identification marks, so that you could see the number of the aircraft the, um, you know, the registration that you had just intercepted, you could make note of that, you could write it down, because, of course, we don't always fly in the daytime. And, you know, if you think it's dark in Canada, in the city, it's very, very dark in Canada, near the, you know, in the in the upper latitudes, uh, with absolutely no lights whatsoever. So, right, that's really all it is. It's dark out there, we needed a big light, we used it. Of course, you know, we have other means to night vision goggles and and a lot of other Gucci sensors today that we didn't have um, when we first started this business. So uh, it was definitely used, to my knowledge, a little bit more in the past. We don't use it often, except except when you accidentally hit the switch <laughs> when you're, you know, BFMing, dogfighting another another guy. And, you know, you'll be at a merge, totally not thinking about that at all. You're sweating, you're tired. And all of a sudden the other guy goes, your light's on. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's kind of one of those things like, dang it, my light's on. And, yeah, right. you know. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're, you don't really want to be seen. You know, you want to avoid being seen. And here's this big spotlight on. That's <laughs> it. The only way I can sort of make a metaphor to it is like someone telling you that your fly's undone. That's really <laughs> the only, that's really what it is. It's someone saying your fly's undone, your light's on. It's sort of like, I don't know how it evolved into becoming an embarrassing thing, but, but it definitely has been. It's like your light's on. Okay. That's hilarious. Um, that is awesome. <laughs> yeah. And w- one of the, you know, you mentioned night vision goggles. I, it, it's no secret. You know, one of the other sensors that's on the CF-18 is a sniper targeting pod. So, you know, with thermal in- imaging and such, it's just new modern stuff that is kind of circumventing some of this older methods of doing visual identification. That's it. And, and it relates back to what we were talking about before about, you know, yes, it's an older airplane, but it's not the same airplane at all. Um Exactly. The technology has come such a long way. We've done so many upgrades. It's far more capable now than than it ever was when we bought it kind of thing. So, yeah. And one of the other things, and it's not unique to the CF-18 by any means, but you typically operationally fly with a Jehemix helmet and that's kind of cool. So, you know, you alluded to some of the new weapons as my guest, Brigadier General Balf shared in episode 47 of Go Bold, um, he was talking about how the CF-18 is going to be getting one of the most advanced AMRAAM missiles. But the thing that I actually thought was more interesting is the AIM-9X. Because with the Jehemix helmet, you know, you can do off-board sighting targeting. And the AIM-9X has a lot more capability in that regard. So, you know, if I were a fighter pilot, that's one of the ones I think is just going to be cool to see uh, and utilize. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Both those missiles are going to bring a big capability to us and are are going to change our tactics in a a meaningful way, I would say. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Um, And so the Royal Canadian Air Force deploys all around the world as mandated by the government of Canada. Um, tell me about flying across the Atlantic and first time in Europe. Yeah, it was definitely a little bit of a different flavor than the recent deployments that Canada has done over there in the sense that the, the air policing mission, op reassurance that we have been doing for, for a number of years uh, was really in that in that stage of there's an actual war going on not very far from where we were. Um, so in, in that sense, it was very sobering. It was very serious in some ways. But what didn't change and what was so reassuring is the group of fighter pilots and maintainers and staff that were there with all the same expertise that we did in training. And that was so reassuring is we just really didn't do anything different than how we how we normally executed our mission sets. So that was really cool to see for me as a young uh, wingman uh, in in the transition of being a flight lead at the time is that the way we trained was the way we fight. That was the reality, uh, which was really uh, confidence building for me. But it was different. <laughs> well, let's talk about that. It was different. We had an active shooting war going on while we were there. Uh, we weren't playing around. It wasn't, you know, a what if cat and mouse game. It was really, there is a war going on and we're taking it very seriously. We did routine flights within the op reassurance air policing structure, working with all sorts of 
other partner nations. At one point, I inter- I intercepted and flew with uh, a French Air Force uh, AWACS, for example. We saw all sorts of U.S. tankers. We saw all sorts of uh, JTACs, uh, which are, um, you know, in the in the CAS realm. They're doing uh, close air support. We worked with them. We worked with with so many partner nations. We we handed the handed the reins over to the Italians when we left. So we got to see the typhoons uh, when they were there. We took over from the Brits, uh, sort of thing. So we we were really part of it. We were really in it, which was which was really neat to see. Before you continue, Tango, I guess just for those that are that are unaware, you mentioned Op Reassurance, uh, but you didn't say where you were, and uh, that was Romania, correct? That's correct. Yeah. 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 And that was for the NATO Enhanced Air Policing mission. That's correct. Yeah. Right. That's right. why we were there. So during that mission, there's. Tango alerts and there's actual alerts. So Tango is a training alert, but to whatever degree you can share, is there any interesting sortie that uh, that stands out to you from that period? Right. Well, first of all, the Tango alert, the Tango scramble that you're referring to, of course, is my favorite scramble <laughs> with my call sign Tango. Yeah, right. Tango. Just had to just had to insert that in there. Exactly. Right. Um, <laughs> love the Tango scramble. Uh, but in terms of your question about the, you know, was there a sortie that stood out? I'll actually say it was the sortie that didn't happen. Um, so okay. if you remember, all on class uh, at this point, but if everyone remembers well, there there was a a surface air missile of some kind that landed in Poland at at, at one at one juncture, and uh, for a good twenty four hours or so, no one was very clear on on who the originator of, of that missile was and um, the headlines of the media read, you know, that, uh, you know, a missile had just landed in NATO territory. And anyway, all that had happened. And I remember I was in the, I was in the, in the, in the QRA at that, uh, during that night. And all I'll say that it was a long night, but I was very grateful that, 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 that sortie didn't happen and that everything sort of, you know, calmed down, level heads prevailed. And uh, we got to the bottom of it without doing anything rash, of course. So, Good. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. The sort the sortie that stood out was a sortie that that okay. didn't that didn't end up flying, and that ultimately didn't matter. Which is which is really the point of the whole thing, isn't it? Totally, totally. It absolutely is. You know, um, a fighter jet is exactly that. It is a weapons platform, and uh, it's essentially like insurance. You know, you got to have it, but you hope you never have to use it. That's it. Hey friends, here is a message about our sponsor, Cubic Defense. Do you know who best supports fighter pilots and other warfighters to be the best that they can be? Well, that is Cubic Defense. Cubic supports military training by providing warfighters the cutting-edge tools that are necessary for operational success. Cubic leads the way with highly precise tracking systems for aircraft and test ranges, This technology has been adopted by militaries around the world and includes capabilities like Air Combat Maneuvering Instrumentation, or ACMI, which celebrates 50 years in support to Allied Air Forces. So important is this technology that it is embedded as an internal subsystem in the F-35. Cubic has also developed SPEAR, a revolutionary learning platform for multi-domain operations and training. 
Spear is a Department of Defense-approved technology stack that reduces cognitive burden through optimized displays and analytics of kinetic and non-kinetic data with weapons effects in multi-domain operations and LVC environments. Spear basically melds objective and subjective data with a time-synchronized, real-time mission log and after-action reporting. This means the Spear software allows warfighters at the unit level or enterprise training and operations level to visualize operations throughout the mission cycle, which enables them to understand multi-domain operations like never before. At all levels of combat preparation and execution, Cubic Defense delivers real results. To learn more about them, please visit cubic.com. Now, let's get back to our chat. So here we are in 2024, and you have been selected as the CF-18 demo pilot for the 2024 centennial year for the Royal Canadian Air Force. That's a pretty cool gig. Yeah, it sure is. Um, I feel very fortunate. I feel excited. I feel a little bit nervous, to be honest. I know there's going to be a lot of a lot of attention, a lot of spotlight on this year, but uh, I'm ready to get after it. Good on you, man. I, I, I'm i excited to see you flying across the country and further afield. Um, so tell me about how this process begins. Um, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe most performers go to ICAS, the uh, International Council of Air Shows. Um, it, it, did you have an opportunity to do that? I did. Uh, so that was back in early December. Uh, I did go down there to do that. So yeah, the International Council of Air Shows, for those that don't know about that, it is really a governing body. In some cases, it's an information powerhouse uh, in other senses. It's an opportunity where performers and air show managers and operations uh, folks can all come, uh, build contacts, uh, exchange information, learn, um, and sell what they're, you know, whatever it is they're selling, whether it's a performance or or something related to the air show industry. So my eyes were definitely open when I went down there. I, being a lowly performer in that context, really is just being a lowly performer. And there's some there's some really heavy hitters in the industry that are really pushing, uh, pushing some really good things out there. So yeah, I did get an opportunity to go down there. It was a really neat experience to to network. To uh, to meet a lot of the faces that are behind the curtain when when the average public uh, person you know goes to an air show, really the amount of work that goes on behind the scenes uh, is is astronomical. Oh, yeah. uh, there's so much coordination, so much administration. Uh, you know everything from safety, uh, contingencies, procedures, um, and preparation that just goes on for months and months before the air show starts. So it was really neat to meet those folks to sort of get an understanding of how it all works and and to build uh, to build some contacts while I was there. Good for you. Like I said, I'm totally looking forward to seeing you fly this year. But you are not new to the CF-18 demo team. Um, tell me about that. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not new. I did have the fortunate experience last summer during the 2023 demo season to shadow uh, modem Jesse Hagersmith, who was the demo pilot then, being his safety pilot. I was serving that role. So I got to follow him around for the Eastern Canada shows and really get a sense of 
you know, what the team was about, what was required of the demo pilot in terms of, of time and energy and work. Um, I got to follow the team around, the maintenance team around, sort of see how they do things. And I was really blown away by the expertise and just how much effort it actually is uh, while you're on the road. I think a lot of fans appreciate that a performer is working hard. He is away from home. He is, you know, on the road for the entire, you know, better part of a year uh, doing this thing. And I really think that the fans get, get a sense of that and really do appreciate the performer. Maybe not so much the, you know, the fellas back home are always giving you a, a rough time. We're always giving you a bit of a good ribbing when you get back, you know, off going doing this thing, but, uh, but it's all good. And uh, it really gave me a good taste of, of what was to come. I was very fortunate for the experience and uh, it's just going to make everything easier this year for me. I think the inevitable question that's going to come is does the, the safety pilot, that guy that follows the, the demo pilot around to be his, um, you know, his safety when he's doing the show, does he always become the next demo pilot? That's always a question. No, I'll just say no, that's not the case at all. Um, it just so happened that that it did work out for me uh, uh, this year, but it definitely isn't always the case. Totally. And I, I've seen that over 20 plus years of focusing on the Royal Canadian Air Force. Uh, it is interesting, though, you know, you mentioned that you hope that people appreciate how much of a time commitment it is. But um, I want to say that to those that are listening, because I appreciate that it really is. And so, and it's not just for you as the pilot of the CF-18. Uh, you have a whole support team that travels with you, and actually two of them. Um, so for those that, are, that aren't that are aware, perhaps you can share a bit about them. Absolutely. And that is one of my big focuses this year, is really emphasizing that there is a team behind the jet that's flying in front of you. There is a team from Cold Lake and a team from Bagaville that composes um, four to five technicians and a public affairs officer uh, who are all behind the scenes working very hard, uh, traveling in between the shows. I think that's one thing that gets missed a lot is that, hey, we're in, uh, you know, uh, Fort St. John, BC one day, and then the next weekend we're in Abbotsford. Well, that team of technicians with the truck in the trailer and all the maintenance parts and everything is traveling you know great distances between shows to be ready to receive the jet to make sure it's all good to go yeah they're Um, driving you're flying that's it yeah so i'm flying i got the easy job i just get to fly to the next spot which takes you know normally no time at all but yeah they're driving they're driving a truck and a trailer so they're going a little bit slower Right. They're, they're doing the hard work. So they really deserve most of the credit, to be honest. They deserve uh, all the autographs and all the praise and all the applause that uh, that I normally get. So one of my big focuses this summer for the demo teams to really highlight that and to really highlight their participation. They And they've earned it as well. We talk a lot about the demo pilot being selected in that application that that we just talked about. But I think what a lot of people miss is that the technicians kind of have the same thing is like they put their names forward, they apply, they want to do it. They get selected uh, individually. They it's a bit of a, you know, if it's a reward to be the demo pilot, it's, it's a bigger reward to be a technician on the demo team. And they are really motivated, really experienced folks uh, who are hand selected uh, because of their expertise, really, because of their 
uh, ability to sort of think on the fly. You're not at your home base. You're not in the normality of what you're used to in terms of getting the parts you need and getting what you need from the right people. And you sort of have to think outside the box to make the show happen. And these are those folks that do that. So uh, again, they deserve they deserve all the same the same credit and attention that I do. You know, I think what you're sharing is so important and it should never be glossed over because it is a team effort. Uh, the jet doesn't get in the air without those people. And uh, yeah, you know, somebody's got to put the ladder up after you get in. <laughs> That's it. That's right. <laughs> to put Can't it do it in. myself. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so let's talk about the the jet now. Um, where is it coming from? And for this centennial year for the Royal Canadian Air Force, it is going to have a unique livery, a unique paint scheme. Let's talk about that too. It is. The jet has been specifically selected from three wing. It has been since delivered to Cold Lake, where it's currently being painted. Um, it is the first year in a couple of years that we are going to have a full paint scheme. So we're super excited about that. The Design has been shared, uh, I think, on a few different social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram. Uh, so it's there for everyone to look at and to get kind of a sneak peek at what's to come. Uh, as far as I have access to information, the paint design really focuses on sort of where we've come from, where we are and where we're going, which is really kind of a neat concept. When you look at the top of the aircraft, it starts at the back you kind of have a bunch of gears and cogs sort of talking about you know more mechanical sort of where we've come from sort of you know um more of a hands and feet direct linkage wires and and fabric and wood sort of kind of aircraft that we started with right back in you know world war one with the sop with snipe moving into you know world war ii with the hurricane and the spitfire and then as you move up the jet, sort of toward the midsection where the wings attach to the fuselage, it sort of switches into a binary sort of ones and zeros. So really that information age that exploded in in the late 80s and 90s and early 2000s, which is really the home of where the CF-18 lived and, you know, where it was designed, where it was kind of birthed from. Um, the fly-by-wire, we're sort of dealing with computers now, we're dealing with logic, we're dealing with binary, and that's that's sort of the generation and the era where the Hornet was conceptualized. And then as you move even further along, along the leading edge extensions, moving towards the canopy and the nose sort of switches to these fiber optic cables, which is really cool because it kind of makes you think about where we're going. You know, we're going to F-35, we're going to all these uh, all these really advanced technologies that uh, that are coming down the line and, and beyond. You know, I, I actually like the fact that that design on the top of the jet ends at the canopy. It ends at the current pilot, which is the pilot that's going to be, you know, in the F-35. It's going to be in those systems. But beyond that, the design stops. It's just finished. If you if you notice well that the, the front of the canopy to the nose is blank. Yes. And it's sort of like, who knows where we're going from there. I think that's missed in my mind. That, I could be totally wrong. This is just me speculating. But I really like that feature. No, I get uh, and it. Then of, and then, of course, on the bottom... You have a couple really iconic uh, Canadian uh, symbols there. You got the stars. You got the the red maple leaf, big and bold there with the with the 100 centennial logo. 
you have the RCF tartan, which is of course iconic and and some really neat design features. And when you turn it on its side, on the tails, you have a lot of the historic aircraft sort of uh, on the one side, and then you have the the modern aircraft that we're currently flying on the one side, or pardon me, on the other side, and uh, and it all kind of comes together. So it is very apropos. It is very in theme with with the message that we're trying to send, kind of where we've been, where we are, where we're going. And uh, it really is a celebration, isn't it, about uh, about the Royal Canadian Air Force and doing a remarkable 100 years of history in a very small country. So, yeah, it's it's a really neat design. I'm excited that we're back to a full paint scheme. And uh, the maneuvers that will be in the show will definitely show off that paint scheme, I guarantee it. I love it. I love it. I'm, I'm looking at the mock-up right now. And... Um... I think it will photograph beautifully, which is one of the things. So, you know, as an aerospace and defense journalist, I'm much more focused on capabilities and concept of operations, et cetera, et cetera. However, as an aviation enthusiast, I love aircraft and there is nothing more pleasing to see than a high-vis aircraft. Tactically, it might not make sense, but I argue for those that talk about, I don't want a fleet of a bunch of high-vis jets. I would say, unless you get into the merge, you know, most of the stuff is beyond visual range now. So unless something goes super wrong and you get into the merge and you have to get into a dogfight, yeah, then for sure, <laughs> it, it might be a little bit of a detriment. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> but otherwise... It looks freaking cool. And for purposes of the demo team, I can't think of a better way to to showcase the Royal Canadian Air Force than having a high-vis jet. That's it. We're, uh, this year is a special year. We all know that. It is uh, it is a high-vis year, like you said. That's the word, high-vis. We have a number of other, like I alluded to before. I can't tell anybody the specifics, but there is a, a couple new things this year to the, to the show, to... Um, to what you're going to see during the performance to it. Yeah. Again, I'm not going to say anymore, but it's, there's a couple new things. I'm really excited for it. It is a special year. We're definitely highlighting that. And uh, I cannot wait for everyone to, to see it. Yeah. Right on. Well, Nork and I, I'm totally excited. And I guess there is the typical CF-18 demonstration routine that happens. Uh, I don't know what you have in store for some of these changes, but I can share something that I've always thought of. And that is oftentimes at air shows, there is a heritage or like a legacy flight where you will fly right. with, with other aircraft. And many times, if you're performing in Canada, you will fly at air shows that also have the snowbirds and you're all RCAF pilots. You know, I've thought about this for so many years and it just doesn't seem to happen, but you know, whether it's one tutor from the Snowbirds and the CF-18 demo jet, or it's the CF-18 demo jet flying in concert with the Snowbirds, I thought that would be super cool. And I've actually, in previous demo team years, I have shot images of that for media purposes, but it was never something that was in an air show routine. And uh, so there's one thought that I have that would be kind of cool. Um and you're not going to give me anything, are you? 
There's a lot of interest. I'll just say that there's a lot of interest in doing those uh, dissimilar formations, uh, those heritage flights. And what I will say uh, concretely is that the routine has been uh, shaved off in a very good way in some of the back corners to allow a little bit more time and a little bit more fuel uh, specifically for those extra flybys, for those extra dissimilar heritage flights. So um, that is a focus that we're kind of leaning towards this year. And um, it's good. It keeps the jet a little bit more in front of the crowd, a little bit more, you know, eye time sort of in front of everybody. And uh, that's it. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> that's good. Fair enough. I appreciate you sharing that. So thank you. And uh, the air show season spans a number of months. It will have you go from one coast of Canada to the other coast and probably back and forth in between. Uh, but you are also going to have the opportunity to go abroad. Uh, tell me about that, please. Right. We have a big demo team schedule this year, a little bit more than what is normal, which is great, just so we can get as ma you know as much visibility across the nation as possible. And then also, like you alluded to, heading abroad. So uh, apart from all over Canada, we are also heading to the Royal International Air Tattoo in the UK for their big air show, as you know, on the 19th, 20th, 21st of July. Um, that is going to be a very unique experience. I think the last time we were there was somewhere around 2018. Um, so it's going to be great to be back there. We're super excited. The UK is super excited. It's kind of neat to head back to you know, the colonial motherland in that, in that sense. And, uh, and to have their, uh, red arrows team actually come to Canada this year. Um, I don't exactly have the specifics on which shows they're going to be at, but, uh, very neat, uh, in that sense to have that trade, uh, awesome. as well. There is a potential right now, uh, not confirmed. I won't say dates or destinations, but there may be a couple shows in the United States as well this year that we're going to be going to, which we're very excited about, uh, being able to sort of, celebrate our birthday with our big brother to the south. So um, really looking forward to those uh, sort of out of local area shows to kind of show off and celebrate that birthday abroad. Yeah, that sounds awesome, Tango. Um, and, you know, it's no small feat to go across the Atlantic. So uh, I'm sure you already have planning underway as to how you're going to do that. Um, would you be able to share some some thoughts on how you're going to cross the pond? I think a lot of those details are sort of to be determined. Um, having gone across the pond, as you said, a uh, couple times myself, I mean, it is a long trip. <laughs> sure. So you're looking at about six, seven hours uh, in a single seat jet aircraft, which I can only liken to sitting in a in a wooden church pew uh, strapped down. Right. Uh, which uh, which is challenging. However, we will you know, in all likelihood, take some air refuelers with us to help us kind of hop along. Um, and we'll get there. We, of course, won't take just one airplane. We'll we'll have a couple backups. Uh, how many? Don't know. But uh, we'll have a couple backups with us just so that, uh, you know, we have some defense in depth that way that if something breaks, um, we can we can definitely do the show. So there's gonna be a lot of moving parts to that one. A lot of people involved. Of course, it's a big undertaking to cross the ocean with with uh, under the best of times. And when you're trying to move an entire demo unit, text, parts, everything, there's, there's a lot of moving parts. But uh, rest assured, we have a really good team of people working on that uh, already. And 
again, just super excited to be over there and to uh, to showcase the the routine with the motherland. I guess with the fatherland now. Excuse me. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Well, uh, you make a really good point there, and and I should have mentioned this before, but any show that you go to, whether it's going to be, of course, in England, but also within North America, Canada and the US, uh, it will not just be your jet that shows up at the show. Um, Your jet, the demo jet will be the one that gets all the notoriety and all the pictures and what have you. But, uh, you know, in the eventuality that things happen, it's it's a mechanical machine, you know, sometimes things break. And, uh, and as great as the techs are, and, and they are awesome. Like, I mean, um, yeah. So sometimes just stuff happens, right? Which means you need other aircraft. That's just it. We do our best to have that backup. Sometimes that doesn't always work out for very good, you know, operational or tactical reasons. We can't always get that backup, and that's really unfortunate. We always feel, you know, very badly for for the fans that showed up to see us. But um, uh, ultimately, we always do our very best to make sure we have that backup uh, so that we can get the show underway and. And again, you mentioned the text there. I'll just share, share a quick story about that one. Back at the at the show at Mirabel Valera last year in, at end of September, just so the listeners are, are aware of the magnitude of work we're talking behind the scenes. So being with the team, we flew the practice show the night before the first show. I think it was the Thursday. The next show was the Friday. We flew the practice show. We actually uh, rode off an engine. Um which had to be replaced. The tech stayed up till 11 p.m. or or later to replace that engine so that we could do the show the next day. Wow. Uh, so that again, testament to to the work that they do and to just how much effort we put into making sure that that jet flies uh, for the show. And if at any point you know we are we are unable to perform at the show, there is usually a a really good reason. And we've given it every effort and every possible, you know, good idea that we've had to, uh, to at least attempt it. So, um, we, you know, we just ask everybody to be super patient and understanding and have a sense of humor with us on, <laughs> on that front. Cause we are, you know, we are super disappointed too. Like nothing, believe me, is worse than going all that way to a show, being super excited doing all this background work of, of our briefings, you know, with the or- event organizers, with the air boss, we're doing our airfield reconnaissance. We're doing the practice shows to, you know, getting on game seven down the tunnel, you know, for the Stanley cup. And then, you know, the game's canceled. So we're, you know, we, we feel terrible about it too. So it's going to happen. Like you said, things happen, stuff breaks, it's mechanical. It doesn't matter if it's, an F-35 or a few decades old Hornet, things break. That's just totally. the nature of the beast. So totally. uh, we do our best and um, and uh, it's just extraordinary the things we are able to pull off with the technicians and with the support that we actually have. So uh, I would love for that narrative to be shared a little bit more this year about, you know, just what exactly what happened happened behind the scenes for that show to even be possible. So again, yeah. we're going to we're going to focus on that. You know, I, I wasn't aware that that happened, but I am aware of what the demo team travels with, and it's not a spare engine. It is not a spare right. engine. So again, so, that comes into that, you know, that experience of the techs and knowing who to talk to at the right time at the right base. And, you know, we were able to get in touch with, you know, the the, the maintenance group that's that's in Maribel right now, L3, uh, who's one of our, you know, biggest and and uh, primary partners for the F-18 long-term maintenance. So they were already there. They were super professional, eager, and 
you know, extraordinarily free with their time to invite us into their, into their hangar, into their grounds to switch the engine and to get us up and flying again. So again, it's one of those things that you almost can't believe it's actually happening. And a lot of it has nothing to do with me uh, as the demo pilot or, or even the safety pilot back then. It's really just the, the team and the experienced folks that are behind the curtain. Yeah. Right on. Um, so a couple of things I got to ask you about. So one is when you go to Europe, um, are you going to try to do the mock loop? <laughs> like I tell everybody, you're going to have no protest from me, but ultimately <laughs> it'll be the powers that be that decide those sorts of activities. But uh, that would be very cool. Um, yeah. I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm smiling with you right now. That would be a neat, uh, neat experience. Yeah, man. I, I know last time the last Canadian jet that went over, they did do it. So, um, okay. Hey, you know, so hey. Hey, you chart your course and just happens to go through Wales. That's right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> that's right. So it, that's, that's cool. Cause I'm sure there's going to be many, uh, many shutter bugs and plane spotters that are going to be looking forward to that. Um, and the other thing I wanted to ask is you mentioned in terms of the jet and its paint scheme, you mentioned the RCAF tartan, and that's specifically going to be where that false canopy is painted. Um, but the jet typically travels with a luggage pod and, uh, and also sometimes pilots have their helmet painted or I guess decaled in a certain way. Um, care to share about either of those or, or is there going to be a luggage pod that's painted up and uh what about your helmet this is going to be a very disappointing answer to be determined to be determined. okay okay well no it's a fair answer right like i mean uh my hope is that that it's a yes to both like i mean perhaps less so your helmet because you can't really see that very well <laughs> you know uh, uh right. but but certainly the luggage pod because it just adds to the aircraft whenever you depart or arrive to a new location yeah, it does. Um, yeah, I agree. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's, that's all I can say. I agree with you. Yeah, right on. Well, let's see. Is there any show that you are in particular looking forward to for whatever reason? And I guess, you know, probably an easy answer is to say Riyadh because it means going across the pond. But uh, is there any other one that might be uh, special to you for any personal reason? Yeah, uh, definitely. Ria for sure, like you mentioned, we, we've already discussed that, but I'm an Ontario boy. I grew up in Sault Ste. Marie, so I have family in, in you know, North Bay, Sudbury, sort of that whole long stretch along there. So that show in June in, in North Bay, Ontario is going to be really fun and really special to me as well. Having gone through the Air Cadet program and doing the glider, doing the power, I actually spent you know, a lot of my teenage years in North Bay and a lot of my weekends gliding in North Bay, Ontario. Cool. So sort of coming back there with the Hornet doing a show is, of course, going to be very nostalgic. It's going to be very special to me. And having my family watching it from from there is going to be awesome. And as well as the Baggettville show. Uh, so, you know, my parents have already said that they're coming and and a bunch of other families. So that that one specifically is special. It's going to be sort of the homecoming show in front of the hometown crowd. It's going to be a great show too with some with some really unique participants. The Italian demo team is going to be there. We're going to have an F-35 demo team there and a bunch of other really cool uh, and special uh, things happen at that show. So if you're around the Quebec region, Saguenay, Bagaville, Shagudmi, that's that's the place to go on June 22nd, 23rd. So looking forward to both those shows. They're back to back actually. So they're sort of finishing off mid to end June. 
those two are going to be, are going to be really special for me. That sounds awesome. And now I'm envious because I'm on the other side of the country. So, <laughs> um, and I guess we should also note that during some of your performances, I assume you'll also be doing some Twilight shows. Uh, that's right. Which ones are going to be Twilight shows? I'm not 100% sure uh, at this point. I believe uh, we normally do, you know, uh, two or three, yep. Um, yep. depending on location. And frankly, it's really up to the event organizer as well. It's like, when do they want, you know, their air show to happen? And if it's during the day, well, then well, then that's what we'll do. So right. uh, if, if they've set up their air show that they want uh, an evening show, then then we are super pumped and super I've always, I've always have a passion for the Twilight shows. I think they look really neat. They look cool. Um, and we like doing them. So, Hey, you know, I echo that because there is nothing like seeing a fighter jet in full afterburner. And, you know, when you reef back on the stick and you actually see how the, the afterburner bends, you know, that yeah. is just, that is like the flame, you know, not, not the engine, you know, but the, yeah, yeah, it's just, it just looks awesome so yeah, yeah we we love we love the twilight shows and we're i believe one of the few demo teams that actually does twilight shows so for everyone watching one of those this upcoming summer just note that uh my understanding is that a lot of the other demo teams don't don't do that they don't do the, the nighttime shows uh, mostly so that's kind of a unique thing that the that the canadian team does and that that we're super you know proud to show off and and sort of get that hype yeah, well, like I mean, and it's not just for those who haven't seen one. It's not just flying at twilight and you know having the ability to see the afterburners uh, more prominently than during daytime. But usually, when you land, you put the hook down and and you let it drag along the runway, so you get a lot of sparks coming off that, and it's uh, yeah, it's just a cool way to end it. You know, that's right. Yeah, we like to do those fun things. Yeah, right on. Well, Tango, I've really, really enjoyed this chat. It's it's been a lot of fun. It's been awesome to get to know you and and to hear about the 2024 centennial year for the Royal Canadian Air Force and how you and the CF-18 demo team are going to play a part in it. Uh, thanks for talking to me about your career, about flying the jet operationally, and uh, and about the CF-18 demo jet this year itself. Um, is there anything I haven't asked you that is important for you to kind of get out there to the public, uh, to our listeners? Um, anything about the team, anything about the show, or just about flying in the Air Force and and what it means to you to fly during this centennial year? I think just to re-highlight some of the things that you and I have talked about already, that while we love doing the demo, that the CF-18 isn't, you know, isn't made to to do air shows. Right. And I think we've highlight, highlighted that a little bit. And if I could just reiterate that again, it's, we love doing it, but ultimately it is a warbird and a war fighter uh, doing it. We've talked about all the operational stuff we've done with it. It is an operational warbird. We've, uh, we've sort of covered that. And, and that's really neat that, you know, you've sort of taken this jet, you've taken this pilot that, you know, love, doing the job and we also love showing it off you know to the public and for everyone to sort of realize that you know the f-18 doesn't tour around the country just to do air shows it's really doing the business it's really doing the job overseas at the pointy end of the sword and then the fortunate thing is that we do get to come back and show it off and then that part is great too i mean i 
I was thinking about this before this interview. I asked myself the question, like, why do I love air shows? And why does anyone love air shows? And sort of what I thought about is, I think today we become a little bit overripe, if I could say that, in in terms of our technology and our social media and stuff. Not that there's anything you know, intrinsically wrong with those things. But what I, all that to say that what I love about air shows is that it gets people out of the inside. It gets people into an experience. The family, you know, gets together, friends get together. We go out of the house into the outdoors. Your heads sort of go from, you know, buried down into a screen to up into the sky, um, watching something super dynamic, super loud. You get to hear it. You get to smell it. You get to sort of feel it in your chest. And, in my mind, no amount of, you know, uh, smartphone or computer can sort of replicate that smell of jet fuel or that feeling in your chest when an afterbird lights. And I think what keeps air shows going and what makes it a truly unique activity is that it satisfies, you know, all those different types of, of entertainment and togetherness and excitement and inspiration all in one, all in one package. So for me, that's why I love air shows. That's why it's still inspiring. That's why it's still uh, kind of ongoing as a as a great sort of family activity, um, you know, that friends and everybody can go to and and enjoy and you know sort of leave that going like, wow, that was that was pretty sweet, <laughs> you know. So I'm I'm excited to be a part of that. I guess is all I'm trying to say. You know, getting to this point in my career, being on the receiving end of air shows for you know for a few decades and loving every bit of it, but being a part of that, you know, mechanism by which people do get outside and heads up is just going to be really special for, for me to sort of enable that and, and be a part of that whole thing. So that's what I would leave everyone with. And, and uh, yeah, Tango signing off. <laughs> <laughs> right on Tango, man. Thank you so much. I, I love it. And uh, I encourage any of our listeners who have an opportunity to get out to an air show heed tango's words get out there and uh and watch uh watch some aircraft pretty cool um that's it totally looking forward to seeing you my friend i really appreciate it uh thank you for the time and uh yeah best of luck to you in this air show season and uh yeah uh hopefully i'll see you in more than one occasion yeah i'm sure we will thanks for thanks for this podcast as well it's good stuff uh you're very very welcome thank you that my friends was captain caleb robert Call sign Tango, a Royal Canadian Air Force fighter pilot, and the 2024 CF-18 demo team pilot. If you have any questions for us at Go Bold, please reach out to us at goboldthepodcast at gmail.com. And we hope you'll join us for another episode. Thanks for listening, everybody. Hope you have a great day. The views and opinions expressed in this presentation are solely those of the participants. This podcast is copyright and all rights are reserved. No portion may be reproduced or used in any manner without the express written permission of the publisher who can be reached at goboldthepodcast at gmail.com. The music on this podcast is Parasail by Silent Partner.